Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For today's show, this is actually a special show because I am reviewing all the short films that are nominated for Oscars this year in the categories of Best Documentary Short Subject, Best Live Action Short, and Best Animated Short. So this is 15 films, and this may take me actually a little while. But I'm going to start with the Oscar nominees for Best Documentary Short Film. And there are five nominees total. The nominees are Island in Between from S. Leo Chiang and Jean Xian, Nai Nai and Waipo by Sean Wang and Sam A. Davis, The ABCs of Book Banning by Sheila Nevins and Trish Adlisick, The Barber of Little Rock by John Hoffman and Christine Turner, and The Last Repair Shop from... Ben Proudfoot, and Chris Bowers. The ABCs of Book Banning, The Barber of Little Rock, and The Last Repair Shop are all American documentaries. And Island in Between and Nai Waipo are considered Taiwanese documentaries. So, how I'm going to do this is I'm going to go for... I'm going to tell you what I think is the fifth best of the documentaries, or rather the short subjects, and work my way up to number one. And I believe that all these documentary short subjects are knockouts. And there have been some times where I've been reviewing short subject films, and I wouldn't give them a knockout by default, but now that I've actually seen them, I can determine that all of these documentary short subjects are great. So, without any further ado, I'm going to give you what I think is the fifth best of the documentary short films. And the fifth best, in my opinion, is Nai Nai and Waipo. And I hope I pronounced that correctly. This is a film that is almost entirely in Chinese. It's directed by Sean Wang, who is a native of Taiwan, but has since acclimated himself into the United States. But... This is a personal love letter from director Sean Wang to his Nai Nai and Waipo, who, is, who are a grandma super team that dances, stretches, and farts their sorrows away. And no, I didn't make that up. That is actually in the synopsis. This film has won a number of awards on the independent film festival circuit, and it is a very sweet tribute to an unconventional pair of grandparents. And it's one of those films that makes you feel warm inside, and I certainly enjoyed seeing this film as well. It is my fifth favorite because I think the other four films stand out in certain ways, in my opinion. The fourth favorite of the best documentary short films, in my opinion, is Island in Between. And this is a film that is directed by S. Leo Chang, who reflects on his relationship with Taiwan, the United States, and China from the islands of Kinmen, 
just a few miles from mainland China. And there is actually a history within the 20th century of the islands of Kinmen, which I actually didn't know existed, let alone were part of the conflict between mainland China and Taiwan before I saw this film. But during the Cold War, the islands of Kinmen were actually used by Taiwan almost as a blockade from communist China. And there are various artifacts that are on these Kinmen Islands that serve as a reminder of the conflict that continues to this day between China and Taiwan, and also their relationship with the United States. It really is fascinating from a historical perspective, but also from a sociological perspective. And it is my, what I think is the fourth best of the documentary short films. Number three is very much like Island in Between, a movie that deals with history, although this is actually American history. It is the ABCs of book banning, and this is actually an MTV documentary film. But musical, it isn't exactly, but it's very impressive that MTV would come out with a documentary that is this timely. It actually has three directors. This is a film that's only 27 minutes long, but it has three directors, so that's actually quite impressive. But it reveals the voices of the impacted parties of books banned from school districts, inspiring hope for the future through the profound insights of inquisitive, youthful minds. And apparently, I saw this film, and I've I've heard some things here and there about states like Florida that are banning books from public libraries, and this is not the first time it's happened in the United States, and it's unlikely that it's going to be the last time. But this movie does tell you, or rather show you, some of the students who are affected by these book bannings. And actually, it gives me a lot of hope for the future of Gen Z and also Gen Alpha, the ones who are in schools right now, and a lot of the inquisitive minds who really want to read some of these age-appropriate books. And honestly, there are some books that children shouldn't read, but when you see the books here that are either banned or contested, or there's a third category, which is restricted, which is, which means that children of a certain age can't take the book out of the library unless they have their parents' permission. It is very shocking and discerning to see some of the books that are banned versus restricted and so on. Uh, for instance, of course, you, you you could say that a book like Brave New World by Aldous Huxley is not appropriate for younger children, and that is certainly true given the content of that. But there are some other books that are banned that deal with black history, like the story of Rosa Parks, which which is banned in libraries for in states like Florida for no apparent reason, or at least a reason that this documentary doesn't exactly give. But it does give me hope that there are children out there who look above the book banning and actually question for themselves the authority and the rules behind some of these book banning tactics, which is certainly one of those subjects that is a very hot topic. 
And for that reason, the ABCs of book banning, in addition to being a well-made documentary, is what I think is the third best of the documentary short films. The second best of the documentary short films is The Barber of Little Rock. And this is a, a documentary that details the story of Arlo Washington, who is a local barber whose visionary approach to a just economy can be found in the mission of People Trust, the nonprofit community bank that he founded. So that's already pretty impressive that he works as a barber and founded a bank. But there's more to the story than that. Experiencing the effects of generational poverty and structural racism firsthand, Arlo Washington understands his hometown of Little Rock, Arkansas, and the profound mistrust of financial institutions that have historically excluded his community from financial stability and economic mobility. There could be more to say about that, but it really does put into perspective the structural racism that minorities, especially African Americans, still experience in America to this day. And it's very easy to say it just happens in the South, but honestly, it doesn't. And this movie, which is directed by John Hoffman and Christine Turner, puts a lot of great light on what is also a timely and hot topic for today. And I think it's told very well. I have a lot of admiration for Arlo Washington and the things that he's done for his community in Little Rock, Arkansas. And The Barber of Little Rock is my second, what I believe is the second best of the documentary short films. What I think is the best of the documentary short films is The Last Repair Shop. And this is a film that, very much like the ABCs of book banning, is about schools today. But it also is an uplifting documentary that tells the story of four unassuming heroes who ensure no student, at least in the greater Los Angeles area, is deprived of the joy of music. It is also a reminder of how music can be the best medicine, stress stress reliever, and even an escape from poverty. And in this documentary, you hear not only from the children who are taking music classes, and these are children of all ages, I believe from the fourth grade to seniors in high school, but you also hear from the people who work in this repair shop to repair music, uh, musical instruments for children to use. And it's also a testament to how life-changing and how critical and necessary it is for schools to have music programs. And this is a problem that schools have had since the 1980s in the sense that they have had their music programs being cut, especially with No Child Left Behind, which was introduced 20 years ago, which has cut extracurricular activities like music, gym, and art, which are essential to a a proper education not to mention an enlivening and enlightening education as well. And not o- I think this is the best, not only because it's well-filmed, and it also deals with another hot topic that has been a bit of a problem for Americans and maybe other people in other parts of the world over the last 20 to 30 years, and that's just for starters, but it also tells various sides of the story. And even when you're at a concert, you don't really appreciate the people who 
create the instruments and as well as keep them in great shape. And I believe this documentary does that. I'm not necessarily saying that the last repair shop will win for best documentary short subject, but I believe based on my opinion that it should. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And this is another reminder that for this show, I am reviewing all the short films that have been nominated for Oscars at this year's Academy Awards, which will be held in Los Angeles on March 10th, 2024. Before the break, I reviewed all the nominees for Best Documentary and uh, Best Documentary Short Subject, I should say. And I reveal to you from number five to number one what I thought was the best and what I think, in my opinion, should win the Academy Award. Now, this is hard because you are reviewing the best of the best, and I have to give you what is the best of the best of the best. But I'm going to do that or going to attempt to do that for this next subject, which is the Oscar nominees for Best Live Action Short Film. And four out of five of these short films are fictitious. One of them it could have been considered a documentary, but it is dramatized, but it is based on a true story. So the nominees for Best Live Action Short Film are Invincible from Vincent Rene Lorte and Samuel Caron, Knights of Fortune, by Lassie Liskjer Noir and Christian Norleek, Red, White, and Blue from Nazarin Chodhuri and Sarah McFarlane, The After from Misan Harriman and Nikki Bentham, and The Wonderful World, excuse me, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar from Wes Anderson and Stephen Rails. Of these five nominees, what do I think is the fifth best of these live action short films? I'm glad you asked. The fifth best, in my opinion, is Night of Fortune. And this is a film from Denmark. And this is a film about the loss of a loved one, the grief, the risk of yellow skin, and a coffin that is too much for Carl to face. And Carl in this film was played by a Danish actor named Leif Andre. And he spends the entirety of this film in a morgue where his wife just died. And without giving too much away, because the film obviously deals with a very heavy subject, but a little while later, it's not quite the film that you would expect it to be, either in terms of its subject or in terms of its tone. But it is a film that certainly grabs your attention, despite the fact that it has somewhat of a slow pace. But there are some moments in this film that are surprisingly funny, especially when Carl befriends another man who he believes is in the same boat that he is. In other words, that he lost a loved one. 
There are certainly some poignant moments to this film, and it is shot very well, not to mention that Leif Andre turns in a great leading performance. And there's also another notable supporting performance by Jens Jorn Spatag, who is the man that the character Carl befriends. And it is a film that you certainly wouldn't forget. But I do have the distinct duty in my humble opinion, to give you what are the best of the best of the best. So Knights of Night of Fortune is a film that I admired. I don't think it is the best of the five nominees, though. But I will tell you what I believe is the best. But I'm going to s- continue with what I think is the fourth best of the nominees. And the fourth best, in my opinion, is Invincible. And this is a film that comes from Canada. Specifically, it comes from the province of Quebec. And it is inspired by a true story and recounts the last 48 hours in the life of Marc-Antoine Bernier, who is a 14-year-old boy on a desperate quest for freedom. Specifically, he is a boy who is in Juvenile Hall in Quebec, and he's played by Leokim Bumier Lepin. And my apologies for mispronouncing that name. I don't speak French. But it is a film that certainly brings me back to when I was 14 and some of the emotions that I was experiencing. Of course, I didn't go to Juvenile Hall, but I definitely have uh, some bad memories of being an early teen. And there are some great moments of symbolism in this film, particularly when it comes to the feeling of freedom and water, which plays a significant role in this film. And the lead actor, whose name I won't repeat because I will just screw it up, is amazing in this film. I think he plays a 14-year-old, particularly a 14-year-old in lockup, very well. And you know he wants to be free, but he doesn't quite know exactly how to do that. But at the same time, he will do it at all costs. In the meantime, he also has a mentor by the name of Luke, who's played by Ralph Prosper, who also speaks the majority of this film in French along with him. I don't know if he's a native French speaker or if that's his only language or if he's an ESL person. But either way, he and Leo Kim Biomir Lepin and man, I pronounced that much better than I did the first time, work together in this film very well. And this is a film that not only packs an emotional, dramatic punch, but it also is a film a lot of people will find particularly poignant. But not as great as the other three films that are, in my opinion, some of the best of the live-action short film Oscar nominees. So my number three choice for the third best live-action short film of the nominees is The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. This is a film that screams Wes Anderson. And unlike most nominees for best live-action short film, this film is packed with some very familiar faces and names. It's narrated primarily by Ray Fiennes and stars Benedict Cumberpatch as a 41-year-old man by the name of 
Henry Sugar, or at least we're told that's his alias, who comes across a book where there where it tells you a story within a story. And this is based on a story that was written by Roald Dahl in the late 1970s. Unlike most of Roald Dahl's repertoire, the story, the wonderful story of Henry Sugar, is not for children. Not really. It's not inappropriate for children, but it was written primarily for an adult audience. And Roald Dahl made his living writing for children, but he also wrote some notable short stories and some novels that were made for adults. And here, Ray Fiennes is the narrator, and he's technically Roald Dahl. And Benedict Cumberpatch plays Henry Sugar, who reads a book about a strange man by the name of Imdad Khan, who's played by Ben Kingsley, who goes into a hospital one day and enlightens, not to mention stuns, Dr. Chatterjee, who's played by Dev Patel, another not only familiar face, but also somebody who is well-known in Oscar circles, as well as Dr. Marshall, who's played by Richard A. Yode, about the fact that he can see without using his eyes. And this thereby inspires Henry Sugar to learn to see without using his eyes. It's a long story here, and very much like Wes Anderson, there are a number of shots of people in the direct center of the film. There are There's narration that takes place where the fourth wall is constantly broken, and there's also a myriad of very impressive special effects. I believe, although I'm not entirely sure, that The Wonderful World of Henry Sugar is the most expensive of the nominees for Best Live Action Short Subject. It certainly is the most ostentatious, and it is two out of the five nominations that you can find and you can stream for yourself right now on Netflix. I don't believe it is the best, though, at least not in my opinion, but it is the one that could win based on probably the auspices of Wes Anderson. But I will get to what is the best after I reveal to you what I believe is the second best of the best live-action short films. And what I think is the, be- the second best is The After. And this is a film that comes from Great Britain. It's a very intense short film. It's only 19 minutes long, and very much like The Wonderful World of Henry Sugar, The After is also a film that Netflix picked up, and if you have a Netflix account, you should see this for yourself. Just be sure to get some tissues before watching The After. The After is directed by Misan Harriman, and also atypical of a lot of... Oscar nominees for Best Live Action Short Subject. This film stars one very familiar face, specifically David Oyelowo. And in this film, he is married to Amanda, who's played by Jessica Plummer. And the two of them have a daughter named Laura, who's played by Amelie Docupo. And this is not exactly spoiling things. You see David Oyelowo's character and his daughter, Laura, walking together in London, and they're eventually meeting Laura's mother in the film. But then something really, really terrible happens. And the rest of the film is David Oyelowo grieving what just happened. I probably gave a little bit away of, of what happens later, but my God, I actually found 
a few tears streaming down my face as I was watching this film because this film is focused almost entirely on David Oyelowo and his character's grievance. And I don't know if David Oyelowo actually experienced a similar kind of grief in this film, but what's very important is that he acts incredibly well displaying this grief. And The After is a film that will probably cut to the heart of just about anyone who has experienced the loss of a loved one, regardless of what relation that loved one would be to this person. And David Oyelowo does such an amazing job. Had this been a full-length feature, David Oyelowo could have been nominated for Best Actor. He does an amazing job in this film, but The After is not quite what I believe to be the best live-action short film. What I think is the best live-action short film, in my objective opinion, is Red, White, and Blue. And this is an American short that also features a face that is familiar and a name that might be familiar too. But rest assured, you have not seen the lead actress in this film, Brittany Snow, in as dramatic a film as this one. Usually Brittany Snow is known for being in comedies like Pitch Perfect, but in this film she takes an uncharacteristically dramatic turn and she does an amazing job. She plays a waitress in Arkansas by the name of Rachel, who is a single mother of two beautiful children who is living paycheck to paycheck. But when an unexpected pregnancy threatens to unravel her already precarious financial situation, she's forced to cross state lines in search of an abortion. And this film could not be more timely, especially considering that last year, or maybe it was two years ago, the Supreme Court controversially reversed Roe v. Wade. And this 23-minute film shows you exactly what some of the consequences are of people who need this kind of procedure done, but unfortunately don't have the luxury of just driving a few minutes or even a few hours to the nearest Planned Parenthood. Because even though abortion is not illegal in all 50 states and the territories, there are the subject of abortion has been put up to the states again. And Arkansas is one of the states that has made abortion illegal. It's not the first state to do this, and as long as Roe v. Wade remains reversed, it won't be the last either. But this movie really cuts to the core of what it means to have those kind of services readily available and some of the sacrifices that the have-nots have to make to make that available, to, to make that hard choice. And in this movie, it's not the choice that's the hard part. The hard part is getting to a clinic, which in the case of the character of Rachel, Brittany Snow's character, is not a convenient thing to do because the closest clinic to which she can legally go to get an abortion is about eight hours away from where she lives and works. This is a film that will make a lot of people think, and there is a twist at the very end that I did not see coming, but when it comes, it is a blow to your senses. And not only that, but Brittany Snow's amazing acting in this film is why I believe Red, White, and Blue is, of the five nominees for Best 
live action short film, the best of the nominees and the one that I think, in my opinion, should win. Will it win? I can't say, but I think it should. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And previously in the show, I have reviewed the Oscar nominees for Best Documentary Short and Best Live Action Short. And I told you that the movies that I think should win in these categories are, for Best Documentary Short, The Last Repair Shop, and for Best Live Action Short, Red, White, and Blue. Now it's time to come to what I believe is probably going to be, in the eyes of many people, the most fun category, the best animated short films. Although this year, many of the films that have been nominated have actually been of really um, heavy topics. Not necessarily, but this movie actually does not, uh, rather these five movies certainly cut to the core and these might be considered the most serious of the animated short films that have ever been nominated, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. And this is also really tough because I think all five of these nominees, like the nominees for best live action short film and for best documentary short film are knockouts. Let me just get that out of the way right now. They are all excellently done. And I have the unenviable task of giving you what I believe to be the best of the best of the best, in my opinion. So that's not an easy thing to do, but it's really the Academy who makes this decision. So this is not me predicting what I think's going to win, but this is what I think should win, in my opinion. So anyway, for best animated short, the nominees are... Letter to a Pig by Tal Cantor and Amit Giselter, 95 Senses by Jerusa and Jared Hess, Our Uniform by Yagani Moghadam, Pachyderm by Stephanie Clement and Mark Rias, and War is Over, inspired by the music of John and Yoko from Dave Mullins and Brad Booker. This is really tough because all five of these nominees are really good. So the number five, I'm not even saying that they are a checkout, which is my second tiered listing on my rating system. But what I believe is the fifth best animated short film is the film Pachyderm. And this is a 2022 French animated short film directed by Stephanie Clement. It blends traditional and computer animation, and it is a subtle narrative about a young girl's survival of childhood terrors, particularly when she is living with her grandparents. And it shows her vacationing with her grandparents in the French countryside. And there are some elements both of coming of age and also of sort of fairy tale fantasy that are, I believe, interwoven very well. And there's also a 
plot development in the end that I won't give away, but it makes the film very poignant. And while I am reluctant to put this as the least best of the best of the best, in my opinion, it is probably the fifth best of the animated short films, but it is very well done. The fourth best animated short film of the nominees, in my opinion, is War is Over, which is a film that is inspired by the music of John and Yoko. Specifically, it's inspired by the song War is Over, which is the song that John Lennon wrote with Yoko Ono's plastic band providing background vocals for that the Christmas song they have, which, which can also be called Happy Christmas. And this is a film that is directed by Dave Mullins and also written by Dave Mullins and John Lennon and Yoko Ono's son, Sean Lennon. And it's a story that, again, is inspired by the, the story of, or rather, the, the song Happy Christmas War is Over by John Lennon, which has since become a Christmas classic. But I don't mind seeing a Christmas-themed movie in March or rather in, in February. <laughs> I, I love Christmas music. But anyway, the story, which is told in CGI animation with some, with some motion capture animation mixed in there, is at a World War I front where a carrier pigeon delivers, moves messages between two soldiers playing a chess game unaware they are on opposite sides, not opposite sides of this chess game, but opposite sides of the battlefield. And the movie is smart in the sense that it doesn't reveal what country each of these soldiers are from or what side they represent, probably adding to the overall senselessness of wars, particularly what was known back then as World War I. It's not especially realistic, but I think it serves as a fable and a cautionary tale very well. It's just that when the title is called War is Over, inspired by the music of John and Yoko, I wouldn't have thought that it would be called it would be inspired by just one song. But I still enjoyed it very much and it certainly had some very touching moments and it's a film that I would see again. But In terms of the five nominees, it is what I think is the fourth best of the nominees. Number three on my list of opinionated best films of the animated short films is Our Uniform. And this is a film that is about an Iranian girl who unfolds her school memories on the wrinkles and fabrics of her old uniform. The director of this film, who I also presume is the writer, is Yegani Moghadam. And she details her growing up in Iran. And the animation for this short is amazing. There's probably a little bit of CGI worked in here, but it's also stop motion animation. And it could not have been easy to do, even with this film being seven minutes long. Because even when you have an ostentation an ostentatious budget and you have many, many people working on stop motion animation, a five second clip of a stop motion animated film takes an eight hour workday to do. So this film probably took months, if not years to complete, but it was well worth it because not only does it tell an amazing story, it also tells it in 
amazing animation. And if this film was further expanded into a film that was at least one hour, 20 minutes long, it would be a film that would be a shoe in for best animated feature film. But our uniform does tell a great story, but it's not what I believe to be the best animated film of the five nominees. It's still excellent. It's still a knockout, but I do have two other films that probably supersede it. My number two favorite film of the animated short films is 95 Senses. And this is a film that starts off presumably like... A, a person who is interviewing his grandfather, although you wouldn't exactly assume that the old man in the story is a grandfather, but he does have some very interesting things to say about how things were back in his day versus how young people grow up now. But there is a twist to it. And as a matter of fact, even though it's animated, it does feel like a documentary, but it isn't, at least not as far as I know. The writers of the film are Chris Bowman and Hubble Palmer, and it, it might be based on a true story, but it's not lifted from anybody's actual narrative. But the person who provides the narration and who plays the only character in this film who talks is voiced by Tim Blake Nelson, who I actually did not recognize from his voice, which probably leads me to believe that he's a better voice actor than a lot of people give him credit for being. It's also worth noting that one of the directors of this film, Jared Hess is also the person who wrote, produced and directed Napoleon dynamite, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. But 95 senses, I believe is the first time that Jared Hess has been nominated for an Oscar. And not only does this old man voiced by Tim Blake Nelson, have a lot of really great stories to tell. The The man's name, by the way, is Coy. But there's a twist in the middle where you find out why he has this certain perspective and also what he has to lose in life based on choices that he made very early on and the consequences that he still lives with to this day without giving too much away. So 95 Senses is another film that is excellent and probably one that would be amazing if we, if we were expanded into a full-length feature film. But what I believe to be the best of the animated short films is Letter to a Pig. Now, this may seem like a silly film to have as the best of the animated short Oscar nominees, but... It's not a sweet story about a boy or a girl and his or her pig. Not really. It is about a Holocaust survivor who reads a letter he wrote to the pig who saved his life. And a young schoolgirl hears his testimony in class, present day presumably, and sinks into a twisted dream where she confronts questions of identity, collective trauma, and the extremes of human nature. Now, I'm not putting this as number one because it's a Holocaust story. Not just because of that. I'm putting it as number one because you don't hear a lot of stories about children who hid from the Nazis. Granted, there were some scenes in Schindler's List that showed children hiding from the Nazis and showing that they were lucky if they, if they found a place 
which was absolutely filthy and they were covered in filth up to their shoulders, but they considered themselves lucky because they weren't dead. That is a harrowing thought. Similarly to some of those scenes in Schindler's list, letter to the pig, letter to a pig, which I presume is based on a true story, although it is written by its director, Tal Cantor tells the story of a Holocaust survivor who survived because he outran Nazis and hid for days in a pig pen and lived and ate with the pigs in that pig pen. He had to resort to being feral in order to survive, but he did. And his story is all the more amazing because of it. And the movie also deals with sometimes the jadedness of some kids who are sitting and listening to this survivor tell his story. They figure that it's ancient history and they don't have to deal with it anymore. But this movie and its unique animation style that blends hand-drawn animation with rotoscoping makes you care. And it also puts into perspective what's going on in the mind of one of the students who actually does care and puts her own life as well as her survival in perspective after hearing this Holocaust survivor's story. It is a harrowing story. The animation is amazing in it, even though it's esoteric compared to the CGI animation that's dominating Hollywood these days. But it is what I believe to be the best animated short film of the five nominees. And that's why I believe it is the best. Will it win? I'll talk about that in a later show. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the short films that I have to review for you for this show, because of time constraints, I wasn't able to get to the feature films that I've seen, but I will get to those next week. And the week after, I'm going to be giving you what I think is going to win at the Academy Awards. That's going to be for my show on March 9th, 2024. So stay tuned for that. It is the day before the Oscars. And I'm also actually going to get dressed up and go to a party at my favorite movie theater in Nashville, the Belcourt. My favorite movie theater ever in the United States of America is the Coolidge Corner Theater in Boston, Massachusetts. But because I don't live in Boston anymore, I've not been to the Coolidge Corner Theater since 2019. But I still love it. I contribute to it financially whenever I can. 
And that's another story for another time. But anyway, what I'm saying is I've got a lot to say about this year's Oscars, and I will tell you all about that on my show on March 9th, 2024. And then on March 16th, 2024, I will tell you my reactions to the Oscar ceremony itself, the winners who I thought deserved to win, who should have won, and I'm also going to dig into the Razzies. But now... I'm going to give you my segment, What's Coming Up Next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of February 26th through March 1st, 2024. And there are a number of films that are going to be released on streaming, but not very many that are going to be released in theaters. As a matter of fact, as I look at the list of films that are going to be released in theaters or are subject to be released in theaters on February 25th, which is a Sunday, February 26th, February 27th, and so on. These are all horror films that I don't think is, are coming out in a theater near me. As a matter of fact, these are some of the films that I've seen listed on the site several times. So there really is only one big film that's coming out on March 1st, 2024, but it is a doozy in terms of big films. This film probably would have been released this past holiday season had it not been for the writer's strike and the SAG-AFTRA strike. And I'm not saying that those strikes weren't justified. They were unfortunate that they happened, but that's not the fault of the unions. That might be the fault of somebody else. But anyway, the big film that's going to be released in theaters on March 1st, 2024 is Dune Part 2. This is the long-awaited, not so much sequel to Dune Part 1, but the continuation of the film that won six Academy Awards is considered by just about everyone to be a significant improvement over the Dune film that was directed by David Lynch back in 1984, which was a critical and commercial failure and is, of the 10 films that David Lynch directed, considered one of the worst. But then again, it has a cult following now, and I think it's largely because of its ambition. And also, you got to admire David Lynch for taking a big risk because a lot of people don't know this, but just getting back on the subject before I get into Dune Part 2, George Lucas actually offered David Lynch the opportunity to to direct Return of the Jedi, Star Wars Episode Six, as we know it now. But David Lynch turned that down to do Dune. That took a lot of guts, and I admire David Lynch for that. Plus, Dune did not end his directorial career. I think every film he directed after that have been, has been significant, if not to everyone's taste. But in this uh, adaptation of Dune Part 2, Denis Villeneuve continues the saga of Paul Atreides, who is played by Timothy Chalamet, who unites with Shani and the Fremen, and Shani is played by Zendaya, or Zendaya, I should say, while seeking revenge against the conspirators who destroyed his family. So it's been a little while since I've seen the first Dune. I do know that a lot of people who were in the original Dune come back for this one, including, as I said, Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya, in addition to Rebecca Ferguson, Javier Bardem, Josh Brolin, Austin Butler, 
Florence Pugh, Dave Bautista, and there are a couple of other new faces in here. Most notably, Christopher Walken, who plays the Emperor of the Universe, which has got to be an excellent casting choice, to be honest with you. And it's it's interesting. I could go into the whole history of the way that filmmakers tried to put Dune on the big screen before David Lynch did, including uh, Alejandro Hodorowski, who had this big-budget vision of Dune that ultimately never got made, but it does have the distinction of being what many people believe to be the greatest film never made. But I'm very excited about Dune Part 2. I thought Dune Part 1 was excellent and deserving of its six Academy Awards. And undoubtedly, even though this film is being released earlier in the year, I think the Academy next year is going to recognize this film, if only for its special effects. And from the few clips I've seen of the of the film you know the few clips that i've been forced to see i think this film is going to be um amazing in terms of its special effects is it going to be better than the original i can't say but i will tell you that i will see dune part two and i will let you know what i think on next week's show rest assured the only way i'm not going to tell you what i think is if i'm not going to be having next week's show. But regardless, there are going to be a number of films that are going to be released on streaming for the week of February 25th through March 1st. And if you don't mind me looking, I actually have to bring up this list right now. And I'm going to just keep talking to you as I'm bringing up this list because I lost it. And now it's coming back on my screen. So if you'll excuse me, I'm going to tell you what's coming up on Netflix for the week of February 26th through March 1st. Here we go. And there are some movies that are going to be premiering. There's one that's called Code 8 Part 2. What that is, I don't exactly know, but I will look it up for you right now. But it is a sequel, so it's unlikely that I will be reviewing this film for you. But it's going to be released on... February 28th, Wednesday, February 28th, it's going to be released on Netflix. And I have not seen the original Code 8, but this Code 8 Part 2 follows a girl fighting to get justice for her slain brother by corrupt police officers. She enlists the help of an ex-con and his former partner, and they face a highly regarded and well-protected police sergeant who doesn't want to be highly regarded and well-protected. So the movie stars Robbie and Stephen Amell, in addition to Alex Maleri Jr. Now, I have not seen the original Code 8, so I'm going to be skipping this film. But if I, I... I'm not going to be seeing it. So, But if you want to see it, it's going to be released on Netflix on Wednesday, February 28th. On Thursday, February 29th, it looks like there is not going to be any original films that are going to be released that day. Now I get into March and hopefully I find a website where they actually tell me what is going to be released on March 1st. And lo and behold, there is one, there's actually a number of films that are going to be released on the platform, but the website I'm looking at is not telling me which ones are Netflix originals. So, and typical of, the first day of a 
of a month, there are several films and TV shows that are going to be released on Netflix. I might as well just tell you what they are. So 2012, which was released in 2012, is going to be released on Netflix. This is the film that took seriously the Mayan belief that the world would end on December 23rd, 2012. And over 11 years later, we're still here. Uh, The Amazing Spider-Man and The Amazing Spider-Man 2 are probably going to be released on Netflix because people want to forget Madam Web as, as much as possible. 21 Bridges which is a film that starred Chadwick Boseman and is quite underrated, is going to be on Netflix. A Medea Family Funeral, which I considered one of the worst films of 2019, will also be appearing. Beverly Hills Ninja, starring Chris Farley. Bonnie and Clyde with Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. Devil in a Blue Dress with Denzel Washington. The Disaster Artist with James and Dave Franco, which was the last great film in which James Franco acted before being canceled. There's also Dumb and Dumber with Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels. Fear with Mark Wahlberg and a then-unknown Reese Witherspoon uh, will also be released. The Gift, the 2014 version of Godzilla, which I thought was amazing. We also have Love and Basketball, National Lampoon's Animal House, Out of Africa, Step Brothers, Tammy, Think Like a Man, Think Like a Man 2, Vampires, which I think is the John Carpenter movie starring James Woods, and Yesterday are going to be released on Netflix. And I am very sorry that I'm not able to conjure up the films that are going to be released on Netflix that are, in fact, originals, but that is just the list that is being given to me right now. On Apple TV+, Plus, there are no films that are going to be released on the week of February 26th through March 1st, but that's okay with me because I don't have access to Apple TV Plus anymore. On Disney Plus, on Wednesday, February 28th, there are going to be a couple of series that are going to be released on Disney Plus. And there is one Disney Plus original that is a documentary that's called Iwaju, A Day Ahead. And that sounds like a pretty intriguing documentary. Although there's another film that's called Iwaju that was made in 2024. It's an animated film and it will eventually be released on Disney Plus, just not anytime soon that I can see. But it's a combination of Disney and another animated company called Kugali. So I actually, I am sorry. This is not a movie. This is a TV series that will be released on Disney Plus on February 28th. I'm really sorry that I'm actually kind of scraping the the bottom of the barrel here to get you what's coming up next. But rest assured, I'll have a better list next week. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.